Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Lara Chambaker, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeremy Wartsman. Hello. I want to say first up a huge welcome to our 100th episode. Woo, woo, woo. Jeremy, we need to edit in some like... Um, air horn, you know, definitely. Yeah, air horn, confetti <sighs> cannons, air horn all of button. that. Okay. Anyway, here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action in between client and creative. So we get to see all sides of the process, but we want to see more. So this season, we've been venturing outside our own industry to explore how others do it. Each week, we're highlighting a different industry alongside a very special guest. And together, we've been finding out what production looks like for different people and companies, making everything from video games to shoes, houses to software and all sorts of other stuff. As always, it's an ongoing exploration of what the hell we're all doing and why and how we're doing it. And this week, it is all about producing theatre, darling. And I'm so excited that we're joined by the phenomenal Michelle Law. Michelle is a writer and actor based in Sydney, and her talents are amazingly diverse. She writes for print, film, television, and theatre. So just a few reasons why Michelle is fabulous. She wrote the fantastic play Single Asian Female, which had sold out seasons across Australia. She's the co-creator, co-writer, and co-lead of the SBS series Homecoming Queens. And her writing's been anthologized in numerous books, including Women of Letters, Best Australian Comedy Writing, and Destroying the Joint. For her incredible work, she's received various awards, including two Australian Writers Guild Augie Awards and an Equity Ensemble Award and the Queensland Premier's Young Publishers and Writers Award. And to bring things full circle, several years back, Michelle co-wrote the book Shit Asian Mothers Say alongside her brother Ben Law, who was on our show a few seasons ago, which was also illustrated by Jackie Winter's very own Oslo Davis, which means I have only three degrees of separation from this amazing woman. Currently, Michelle is working on an original feature film and several new stage works. She's also a prolific speaker, regularly appearing on panels and at festivals. So we're super lucky to have her here with us today. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. How are you going this morning? I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and really honored to be here on your 100th episode. Woo, woo, woo. More air horn. There we go. So we don't even need the button, Jeremy. You can just do it for us for free. So (laughs) can feel the energy. How are you doing today, Jeremy? I'm, yeah, I'm doing okay. I don't know why. Every time you ask me that question, like I really get deep. I look inside, you know, I I open the door, I see what's there. I shut it very quickly and then. And you're always just, okay. And I come back. I'm I'm, I'm Okay. (laughs) Well, enough of that. Let's do this. Wonderful. So, Michelle, you clearly do a ton of stuff, but we've got you here today because we want to pick your brains about producing theatre. So let's start here. Can you tell us a bit more about your theatre work and how and why you got into it? I actually still feel like a bit of a theatre noob because I've only had the one play staged so far, but I only really started playwriting maybe four or five years ago now. So it's something that I always wanted to do. And it was, I love theatre and I've always seen it, love musical theatre, love anything to do with performance art. And it was something that I was interested in from a very young age, but I guess I never really saw an opportunity as to how to actually make it. And it wasn't until actually this program called Lotus, which was being run by Playwriting Australia, an organisation which is now called CARP, it's Contemporary Asian Australian Performance. They started running these playwriting workshops for Asian Australian writers around the country. Mm. And that was when I started developing Single Asian Female. And that was about, 
yeah, four or five years ago now. I think if it weren't for that program, I wouldn't have progressed into theatre as much as I have now. Yeah, so it's something that I've always loved and only really saw an opportunity to get into sort of recently. It's wonderful when you see very clear, tangible results from programs like that and, you know, how that's reflected in your work. Tell us a bit more about Single Asian Female and how that was sort of coming up with that and putting it out there in the world. Yeah, so Single Asian Female, it's a family comedy and I started developing it as part of the program, not really knowing if I actually had an idea to begin with. The workshops were pretty structured in that we might write scenes or just work on a particular character's monologue and then sort of try to stitch those together into a cohesive form. Mm. But I sort of took inspiration from this blog that I used to keep of the same title and it was called Single Asian Female. And I was never really into blog keeping before. I was actually largely inspired by your partner, Lorelai, Jeremy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, she used to keep an amazing blog. I think it was called something along the lines of One Woman's Journey in a World Gone Mad or something. <laughs> but I remember reading it and just being so delighted and it was so funny and vulnerable and heartfelt. And I started keeping a blog that was about being a single Asian woman in modern Australia and how those identities sort of intersect with each other. And when I started writing the play, I was like, okay, maybe there's something in this. And it evolved into being about a family, two Asian Australian sisters and their mother. And they're all going through very particular stages in their life. So their their mother is sort of dealing with being an empty nester for the first time. The eldest daughter is at a crossroads in her life where she's sort of having to choose between having a family and having a career. And the youngest daughter is uh, in her final year of high school and really grappling with her own cultural identity. And they're all sort of keeping secrets from each other that implodes by the end of the play when all of these truths are exposed. And how did you know how to start writing a play? Like, is that something, this is something you hadn't kind of done before, but did you find your talents easily were able to glom onto that? I think because I'd done other types of performance writing. So I sort of started with screenwriting, using those skills, especially with dialogue and transposing them into playwriting was a little, made it a little bit easier. And I've always, even with prose, I've loved playing with dialogue and trying to communicate as much as I can through dialogue alone. Mm. Um, So I think that's, yeah, that made that skill set easily transferable in that sense. Interesting. So one of the things that I really have enjoyed about this season is kind of, yeah, talking to people from different disciplines, especially that intersection with production. And it's something that I've always found that when we kind of go and hire producers, people either come from the live action world or from the theater world. And even though there's this role for producers there, it's very different to what we do, even though there's lots of intersections. And that's what I'm really interested in exploring here. So I'd love to hear a bit more, I guess, from you, even though you are kind of an active, I guess, producer in that way. Um, I'm really curious to how, like how you get kind of something from that concept to actually on stage. Like, are there specific milestones that you can kind of take us through from when you had the idea to when an audience was first there and what that looked like? Yeah, absolutely. I guess in theater, it's interesting because I guess I see my role more as a creator than a producer in the conventional sense. So from the get go, I guess you start with a nugget of an idea. You'd probably flesh that out into a pitch document 
which is similar to a series Bible Mm. with TV. So you might have the list of characters, like a one paragraph synopsis, and then a short treatment or something like that. You'd pitch that to a company's literary manager. If they're interested, you might meet up with them in person to speak about the idea a little further. And if they're into that after the meeting, they would commission it and the contract process would come into effect. And when you say that, you mean a theatre company as in, you know, like STC or MTC, something like that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And then once it's commissioned, you'd go into the writing and research stages of it. And a lot of writers are really different in their process. Some sort of write it on the fly and they don't know how it's going to end. I like to be, I'm quite anal about organisation. So I like to have a full treatment and have an idea of what the story's arc is going to be. And it might deviate from that a bit, but at least I sort of know what I'm working towards. Mm. Then from there, once it's done, you submit it, you have specific parameters in terms of time frame of when that's due. You'd meet again with the literary manager and then start the redrafting process. And then once that's done, you'd have a meeting with the company to decide whether they'd like to stage it eventually. I think there's a specific time frame where they lose the right to do so. And then they can choose whether or not they'd like to program it in a future season. So while you're writing this, I'm really curious, are they paying you to kind of write that? Or is this something you're still doing out of pocket at this point? Um, So it's very similar to a book advance. So you'll get, it's a certain amount of money that gets broken up into say first signature and then delivery of first draft, delivery of second draft. Mm. And then, yeah, once it's actually commissioned. So it's, you are getting paid, but it's very similar to, you know, other freelancing jobs where you'll get paid in lump sums and then you sort of have to ration that out over time. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So once they've agreed to actually stage it, what about all the other things go into it? You've got, of course, you've got to figure out cast, sets, lighting, all sorts of other sort of facets. So how did you go about figuring all that out for Single Asian Female and who are some of the people you work with to pull that all together? So you generally tend to work with, I think it's different with every theatre. With Single mm-hmm. Asian Female, I worked pretty closely with the creative director of, at the time and the theatre itself, they have existing relationships with directors. So the first thing would be that you get paired with a director mm. and you meet with them and you can talk about their artistic vision and, you know, casts that you have in mind. They might have particular technical staff like sound technicians, composers, lighting designers that they'd like to work with or they have an existing relationship with. And then from there, it's the hiring of those technical staff and auditions for performers as well. It can be sort of a protracted process, but throughout it, you're working quite closely with the director and if there's an assistant director as well. So I'm curious to hear a bit more about how the translation from the written page to the stage kind of happens. I mean, a lot of where things can really kind of go wrong sometimes is there's being disconnect between the creator's vision and then all the people kind of working on it. And there has to be a lot of control to make sure, you know, those things are realized as you intend. You know, Do you rely a lot on the specialists that you're kind of bringing in in that way? Or do you like to have a lot of control over that? And yeah, how do you go about making sure there's that consistency there? Yeah, it's really interesting because... I guess because I was so used to working in the screenwriting world, you have a limited amount of control as a screenwriter, but in Mm. theatre, the playwright is king or queen, which I was very unused to. So I would be consulted about everything pretty much. (laughs) 
and going into the development of this new play that I've got coming out at Belvoir next year, we're still in development stages. So I've been very lucky in the sense with this new play that I've gotten funding to have a development week. So that means I can sit down with the director and the assistant director and have meetings about the script. We'll also have a table read with actors that we bring in to get a sense of what I need to change about the draft and what works and what doesn't. And then we'll also have meetings with the set designer and the costume designer. And I think sound and lighting will probably come into effect later. But generally, there's a lot of cross-consultation between me, the director, the designers. And that's different with everyone's process, but that's what I like to do and to just continuously check in to make sure that what is being, I guess, the outcome reflects or matches with the tone and the aesthetic that I have in mind. Because something that I like to do is I create a Spotify playlist for every project that I work on, really regardless (laughs) of what medium it is. I'm very sort of orally connected in terms of tone and emotion when it comes to work. So I'll send that Spotify playlist to the director and then she'll probably pass it on to the sound designer and composer. And then I also have a mood board and that can be helpful for the set and costume designers as well. So yeah, it can be a bit of a protracted process, but during that time, everyone's sort of in contact with each other. Interesting. And I love that there's those visual cues there. Are there any other written things that happen? Like, you know, is there like I know, for example, sometimes on a TV show, they'll have like a Bible, which is kind of like, you know, a whole piece of writing that talks about how characters connected and, you know, backstories and things like that. When I've kind of seen screenplays that, you know, it's outlining directions and kind of movement and things like that. But are you actually writing all of those other things in terms of how things are like, you know, should be looking and what's happening kind of with the lighting and and what people are kind of looking like? Where does that get documented and how does that fit within your writing process? Yeah, essentially it's down to each playwright's writing style. And this was something I sort of struggled with when I started writing for theatre because I was so used to writing every single action and every piece of blocking as you do with screenwriting. And so a lot of playwrights' stage directions are quite sparse and that sort of leaves more creative control for the director. And Other playwrights are very, very descriptive and in-depth in terms of, you know, costume or what sort of music is playing. Mm. Um, I would say I'm somewhere in between. If something is very important to the scene or the character, like a particular prop or a particular song, then I'll include that. But I also leave a bit of space for the director and the other technicians and designers to have their input as well because it really is such a collaborative process like the end product of EC on stage it isn't you know it's the genesis of the script and that in a sense is the bible that they talk about in tv but in theater it's the script is what people always come back to so they'll sort of look for cues within the dialogue or within even the characters themselves and what type of people they are. Michelle, you did mention that you're not kind of technically a producer, but production is such a big part of theater and of plays. And I'm just wondering if you can maybe just outline a bit more about the producers that you work with and kind of what their roles have actually kind of been in the whole process at all. Oh, gosh. Uh, the producers I've worked with, they all sort of wear many hats, but really it's the facilitating of meetings and sourcing directors and sourcing actors and the technicians. So they're really running the show in the sense 
creatively as well as logistically. So I will collaborate with them in terms of this is a director or actors that I'm interested in working with, but then they'll also be able to organize everything for me. So they're across the board in many ways. And are there different levels or names of those kind of people? Like I know in film, you know, usually executive producers, kind of the first thing that you see is, are there kind of similar hmm. roles and kind of breakdowns there? There's the artistic director, who's the artistic director of the theatre company. Um, you can have the creative directors after that, who in a sense are producers in a more conventional sense. And then you've got dramaturgs who are almost like editors in the literary world hmm. and literary managers, and they're the ones who sort of, they're dramaturgs themselves, but they will help develop work. They'll commission work. They'll find projects by new writers or look for existing projects that they, they'd like to scope out a program as well. So it's really sort of a hotbed of producers all helping each other. Do you play any kind of role in kind of selecting those people? Or is that kind of something like, you know, do you have like, um, I guess, someone who really kind of works alongside you as a partner in that way, like to reach out to these people? Or yeah, what's the kind of network that these people come from? Um, a lot of the time, they're the actual staff at a theatre company, or there might be freelancing ones that you might have an existing relationship that you can bring into. But oftentimes in my experience, it's been the actual staff sure. at a company and you'll be able to speak to them about if there's particular people you'd like to work with and they might bring them in. But oftentimes they'll have someone in mind that they want to match with you. And it's sort of like a weird matchmaking process in that sense because you'll get a coffee and sort of scope each other out. They'll have read the work and have an idea for how they see it. And then it's really just a matter of figuring out if it's going to be a relationship that can, I guess, will progress into the future and something that you can maintain over time, not only professionally, but personally as well, because you spend so much time with them. You need a Tinder for playwrights. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and how do you think this is with all the different kind of roles that you do from writer to actor as well? Like, you know, does that inform how you approach all these kind of different things? Yes, totally. That's a really good question because I'm finding that more and more, especially with this new play, because I'm acting in it as well next year. So with the development week that we've got coming up soon, we've got a table read with actors, but we're bringing in an actor to read for my role because that way I can focus on the script itself as opposed to being mm. distracted by reading and acting, essentially. Sure. So that's been an interesting process and then once we get into the rehearsal room I'll be on the floor as an actor but then at night I'll be going home to do edits as well. So obviously you've done a lot of screenwriting stuff and then I think even with that background this being your you know single agent female being your first play there must have been some learning curves for you. What kinds of things are you taking from that into your next play that you're currently sort of in in the middle of production for? Oh gosh that's a good question. Definitely stage directions. I was so unsure of form when I started playwriting because it really feels like there's no rules. And with other forms of writing. And what do you mean by form? Um, just in even things like what font do I use or what format is this script mm. or how much stage direction should be written. 
And um, sorry, I have to I have to interject here. Like that's, that's such an interesting thing. I've never considered that. Like most screen plays that I've kind of seen are all courier typewriter stuff. But yeah. I, I, I think I was reading the other week, of, like you know, something in this kind of whole Russia probe that like you know there was like this whole very serious memo written Comic Sans and you know how that really you know that was like a news article. But like you know, I'm someone who's very you know geeky about typography and lettering, especially. And so yeah, like when you're trying, this is kind of the document that has to get tone across. So I guess people would use courier because it's, I guess, neutral in that in some kind of ways. But I always look at courier and I kind of see something very kind of formal and old timey as well. Do you or does anyone that you've kind of seen like work with typography in an interesting way when it comes to these screenplays? Uh, I find it really interesting as well, because I haven't seen it in screenwriting really, because with screenwriting, there is an industry standard. So whether you're using Final Draft or Scrivener, or what have you, any other program, it's always courier, a particular sized font. All of those formats are actually inbuilt into the program, so you don't have to think about it. So that's why I found playwriting so baffling, because just even what font to choose was just like, I don't know where to start with that. But it's interesting with different plays as well, because often they're written quite poetically, and the form shifts depending on what sort of genre you're writing in as well. Mm. Some people even format them in similar ways to prose. I'm quite traditional in the sense that I will try to structure the play to look like, you know, published plays. So it's quite easy and straightforward to read. But it's very different. And that's, I guess, the liberating thing about it, but also the baffling thing about it. Yeah, completely. I think I find that really interesting because I, I mean, I'm a writer and copywriter myself and I remember like early days when I, let's say like the first time I had to write like a press release or something. And I remember sort of madly Googling and asking people like, what's the format? Where do, you know, and, <laughs> and you'll find things on the internet that tell you like, oh, press release has to be exactly laid out like this. And then another resource will tell you, no, it has to be exactly like this. And I think like the more and more I write in the more different forms I write in, you sort of realise, I mean, yes, there's a balance between using the norms that people are are used to so that they can quickly kind of understand it, but also the best way to write is the best way to be clear in that piece. You know what I mean? Like what's the clearest way to get that information across? And if that's not necessarily the same as it is for all the other things, then that doesn't matter, you know? Following rules for the sake of following rules is pointless, but you have to kind of do a lot of things before you feel comfortable breaking those rules. And in the end, people don't really care. They just want the information. So um, I find it really interesting. Yeah. You've kind of had those same realizations with theater writing. So, I mean, I want to talk more as well about tools, you know, um, I think from the sounds of it, a lot of the work in theater is quite old school in terms of like, it's a lot of face-to-face, probably a lot of email. Are there any tools that you use to assist either you in creating the work you alone or also to actually kind of work with other people? Oh, that's a really good question. I guess theatre is quite old school in that sense because it is a lot of face-to-face. Tools I use, definitely a lot of emails. (laughs) There can be conference calls at times. Most of the time, I'm not really using anything too technologically advanced. And even with the writing of plays, you know, a lot of people prefer certain software or or they like Scrivener. And I've tried using Scrivener, but I think having too many options sort of overwhelms me. Mm. So I'm pretty old school in the sense that I just use Microsoft Word and that I'm just really practically using the formatting that is useful to me. 
Mm. Um, yeah, I wish there was a more glamorous answer, but no, unfortunately there's not. But that's interesting to us very much so. And I, what about in terms of like keeping your own sort of schedule and deadlines? And you mentioned you're like, you know, you are really organized about these things. Do you have any kind of apps or other sort of platforms that you rely on to help you do that? I mostly use Google Cal. I'm pretty good with creating a schedule for myself. So I'll sort of key in the main deadlines, which is like first draft due, second draft due, meeting with the literary manager. So I'll have specific deadlines that I'm working towards and then I'll go through my Google Cal and I'll key in each day what I need to Mm. be working on. So one whole week might be, you know, completing the treatment or writing scenes one, two, five, or doing a complete proof of the whole script. So that way I ensure that I'm hitting those deadlines and I'm not missing out on too much. But in terms of good at sticking to those? Um most of the time. Sometimes I just get a bit exhausted. (laughs) But I find that if you're able to stick to those, as well as giving yourself a little bit of leeway along the way, you can get done pretty quickly. So Michelle, we talked a bit before about, yeah, the ideal situation when, you know, your vision is being realized on stage there. But I think with every creative project, one thing we always love hearing is is about disaster stories or when things go wrong in that way. What are the main challenges that you have to work with? I mean, anything unique to the medium that you found, I guess, a bit daunting or kind of new when it was kind of thrown at you? And yeah, love to hear about when something kind of went wrong and yeah, and how you kind of fixed it. <laughs> I love disaster stories. Um, so good. I think with the writing of it, it's a lot more controlled in the writing process because if there is a disaster, you have... Not a long amount of time, but at least, you know, a day or a couple of hours to get something done. Like if a scene doesn't work during a preview showing of the show, you have a bit of time to fix that. But I found that disasters sort of... When you say doesn't work, what what does that mean? Oh, if it's not hitting the right note, it might be that it's not, the gag isn't funny enough or the scene isn't advancing the story or it's not indicative of the character, just something about the scene Mm. that's off. So that might need replacing or redrafting. But I found that disasters, yeah, tended more to happen as a performer. I had to step in during a remount of the show because one of the actors got pregnant and just performing in theatre is so different to any other form because it's live and anything Mm. could happen and it's totally different every night i remember one night i had gastro god and (laughs) remember the assistant stage manager having a nightmare no no having to buy all these particular drugs and just buy me bran to sort of try and clog me up and i remember just in between scenes because it was in a round theater so i was sort of running backstage just in a curved line like to the toilet and then back onto stage and then back to the toilet <laughs> so that, <sighs> that was is the disaster. perfect embodiment of the show must go on it oh really my god is. Just... uh and oh, there's that abc documentary about the performing arts so stage and screen performance and all of that and i think it's called the show must go on and even things like mental health issues are such a big problem in show business and anxiety and I think just managing that and yeah having to be part of a show that is quite emotional Mm. and learning that you have to come down every night and have like a routine which I didn't know before Um, you do it all over again as well yeah yeah so you're reliving all of these things every day and night if you're doing a matinee show as well 
and your brain knows that it's not real, but your body's going through all of the emotions. So you come home after a show and your body's still high on adrenaline and it feels like it's maybe lost a child or it's had a fight with a a loved Mm. one or it's been through war. And so your body's still on this really confused high. And so you sort of have to have a proper routine every night to calm down, like whether that's having a cup of tea and watching a stupid show or doing some yoga is having a long hot shower or something like that. That's super interesting. I mean, one thing, like one of the immediate parallels I think about is more the, you know, the hospitality and restaurant kind of business where there is an element of kind of theater involved there, but you have to do, you're trying to do the same thing every night or every morning, whatever you're doing your service. And invariably, you're dealing with kind of this human element there. So I think that's the thing that people love about that, but also the thing that can be so volatile, like you don't like something can be slightly off, it can be, you know, there can be a chain can be broken. And obviously, that exists in kind of any other creative medium that we have, we've kind of explored here. But yeah, I think it's the most kind of potent in theater. So I'm wondering, yeah, how do you process that? Or how is it kind of handled within a production? Like when something does go wrong, or when those things kind of do get missed, because like, yeah, like there's word of mouth is kind of a big thing. So you know, there might have been a critic there. And that kind of affect the write-up and how people see it or how people talk about it. How do you manage that whole social side of things where not only of the people who are kind of running it, but the audience as well and kind of getting them to come back? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And this was something I have learned over time is that, you know, you've got those people on hand to help you with those things. You've got a stage manager who's really sort of, I guess, the equivalent would be like a showrunner in Mm -hmm. television. Um, Sure. And you've got an assistant stage manager who sort of is literally their assistant. And you get things like stage reports at the end of every performance. So, Jeremy, you were sort of talking about hospitality and, you know, how you're performing the same thing every night and, you know, how do you account for things that might go wrong and fixing those things in the future. So that's really what the stage report is. That's what its purpose is. So it will have notes from the stage manager who's, you know, in the box controlling the show Mm. and they will write down things like the audience laughed at this line, the kettle wasn't working at this point, need to fix this tomorrow night, things like lighting was too harsh at this point, there were a couple of murmurs from audiences at this point. So therefore the director and the writer and all of the technical staff to look at so the actors don't see that stage report but if a director thinks there's a particular issue they might contact the actors and say you need to work on this part but essentially yeah the stage report is sort of an evolving document each night that basically records the entire season of a show Um, so they're pretty amazing things in that way so it's it's nice also to have a document that you can reflect back on to see how a show's transformed and it's also handy if the show gets remounted or it gets another season because as a writer you can reflect on those moments that audiences enjoyed or they maybe didn't particularly understand. And so it really helps your practice moving forward as well. You touched on another thing that I wanted to get into, which is, I guess, more of a personal curiosity, but how the kind of financial model works there and how what the goal of a successful production is. Because, yeah, they I understand they do kind of run in seasons, but what is your goal kind of as playwright? Like, is there forms of other passive income that happen after that kind of season is over? Like you say, remounting is kind of one thing, or can it get relicensed to other companies and things like that? And have you ever been in a situation where you were kind of disconnected and someone else was kind of performing it? Or, yeah, I'm not kind of sure where that's 
I get the first part of the question. I wasn't sure about the disconnection part, if you could expand on that one. Like, have any of your works kind of been performed in a way that, yeah, was kind of outside of your control, like in a way where like someone's taken it and run it kind of in a different physical location where you weren't part of it? Ah, not yet, because generally they need to get permission beforehand. It's fine if, because the play has since been published so people can buy it in book form, you know, if they want to sort of perform scenes for auditions to get into acting schools or if they want to perform scenes as part of assessments at school. But if there's an actual production of it that somebody wants to put on, they need to get permission beforehand to do so. And who kind of manages that side of things? It depends on who's licensed the play or if it is still under license. So that might be a particular theatre. But once that expires, it reverts back to the playwright. And is that something that you kind of actively think about, like as you're making this work or like, you know, what is the kind of like, is the goal that it can be kind of financially rewarding from just the initial run of it? Or are you always kind of looking at the life beyond it in, in other ways? Uh, that's a really good question, because I think my, the way that I think about theatrical work now has changed over time. I guess I was quite naive when I wrote the first play because I was just really thrilled that it was being put on in the first place because it's really, really rare for plays to be remounted and be programmed in seasons continuously. And I wasn't aware of that when I started. And now that I am conscious of that, it can be very financially helpful (laughs) if you create a work that has a life beyond its first season because beyond the payment that you get from a commission and beyond royalties from ticket sales and perhaps royalties if the play itself is published. You then continue to get royalties from shows when it's remounted. And ideally, it'd be great if the published version of the play, you know, makes it into school curriculums, Mm. because sort of once you're on the curriculum, that's a sweet spot. So that's sort of something that I'm conscious of as well, like making it accessible for educational programs and just moving forward and and making the practice a bit more sustainable for myself on a practical level. I think that's really interesting. And I think there's some really fascinating crossover in terms of the work that you're doing and the work that we do with illustration. Even when you mentioned about, you know, getting the play into the curriculum, there are similar sort of questions with illustrators getting their work into sort of textbooks and supposedly getting royalties from those, though we have issues in the industry, whether or not that happens. But I think there's something I definitely relate to and a lot of people, a lot of creatives will relate to. And what you said about being potentially a bit naive with the first one because you were just so happy that it was happening. And I can think about lots of early projects where I felt the same and there's something wonderful about that and sort of potentially negative, you know, whether you don't necessarily fight for certain things that you should have or or maybe just don't think about certain elements that would be helpful for you down the track. But there is a point in most people's creative career where things are just like, it's just exciting that it's happening at all. And I I kind of love that. And so I wanted to ask you to kind of wrap things up in your time producing this work and you're moving into your, into your second play. And I imagine, I hope there's going to be more after that as well. (laughs) What are some things that you've learned that you would pass on to anyone who's interested in getting into theater, whether that be writing, producing, or any other facet of it? Yeah, I think um, the first thing would be Something that my director, Claire Christian, she directed Single Asian Female, would remind me when the production would just become quite overwhelming Mm. because 
And I, I think it's the same in any other creative field where you're so invested and so sort of blinded by a project that it just becomes the entire world. Something she said to me was, you know, it's just a show. <laughs> it's not going to save someone's life. You're not performing brain surgery on someone. So just have fun mm. and don't kill yourself over it, basically. The other thing would be working with people that you like and who have similar work ethics to you especially meeting people with similar aesthetics who work in a similar tone to you is really helpful because once you find those people in the industry, it's really important to hold on to them because the more people you meet, you realize how rare that is. Mm. And probably paying it forward as well, whether that's mentoring younger, more emerging artists or you know, teaching workshops or helping out with programs facilitated by organizations that are sort of targeting marginalized groups and things like that. And I think on a practical level, just in terms of process, just letting go of ego and being open. I think that's sort of rambling, sprawling advice, but Mm. hopefully it's helpful. It's certainly helpful. I think there's a lot in there, not just for people wanting to work in theatre, but also anyone sort of wanting to work in any kind of collaborative industry, which most of the creative industries are. Um, Michelle, I just want to say a huge thank you for joining us today. It's been wonderful chatting to you. And if people want to learn more about you or your work, where can they go? Oh, they can go to my website, which is michelle-law.com. Awesome. Um, and my Twitter, which I think is Ms. Michelle Law. Lovely. <laughs> and my Instagram's the same handle. Awesome. Anderson mentioned a, f- a fantastic portrait of yourself by one of our other oh, artists, Irene yes. Chapman. Yes. Yes. Um, I've got her. Such a small world. <laughs> I've used her portrait on my website, and she is amazing. And I have always loved her work. Last thing before we move on, I want to quickly uh, prod you for information about the new play. When is it coming? How long do we have to wait? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Let me just actually check the website because I've forgotten the actual dates of the season. (laughs) One moment. You're in too deep now. You're in way too deep. I just, okay, so the play is called Miss Peony and it's on at Belvoir Street Theatre in 2020. And the season goes from the 1st of August to the 6th of September. But we're also touring it um, to Melbourne at the Art Centre and QPAC in Brisbane. That is right over my birthday, so I'm just going to have to go to Sydney Yay. and see it. Michelle, that was amazing. Thank you so much for being on with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was lots of fun. Alrighty, before we go, here is what's been open in our tabs this week. Or Michelle, as you mentioned before we started recording, might have been opening your tabs for like five weeks. But uh, oh, <laughs> a quick God. reminder, to get these links sent directly to your inbox, you can just sign up to our newsletter by going to jwg.is slash newslettering. Or you can head to our website, jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. All right, that's all the boring stuff. Jeremy, what have you got? What have I got? I have got a... I've got a link to an AV Club article, but this is to a four and a half hour explainer on Twin Peaks, basically. So this is someone who has gone through everything. And like, look, I am all for just kind of letting the mystery of Twin Peaks wash over me. It was a very, very formative part of my growing up. And I don't think 
the work is meant to kind of be explained, but that doesn't stop me from wanting to know so much about it. And I kind of I love the effort that has gone into this. This is a real like work of art. It's amazing. And so I'm kind of slowly picking over this at my current rate of being able to watch about like maybe five minutes of television every three weeks. I will <laughs> potentially get to this like in my 80s um, at some point. So it's going to be a long term open tab. Um, oh, but yeah, that is. Yeah, I was wondering where you were finding four to five hours to watch this. I've never actually seen Twin Peaks. Is that like a problem? For our relationship. Okay, well, that's this is the last time that we ever yeah, talked, cool. but um, nice knowing you, Laura. It's a good way to end it's 100th, 100th episode. episode. And so, yeah, oh, we, we had a good run. So, yeah, done. Wrap it all up. <laughs> what do you got? Uh, my, I've got something equally important and just, yeah, just interesting. I have an Oz bargain deal. Um, so <laughs> I have been, I've been dreaming about buying a Dyson for like most of my adult life. <gasps> And right, that is the appropriate Overrated. reaction. Shut up, Jeremy. <gasps> that is the appropriate reaction. Controversial, Jeremy. Michelle, that's what I want. I, Jeremy's off the show. Michelle, you're in. New co host. Um, <laughs> we could just have a Dyson podcast. So I've been wanting to buy one and it's just been so inaccessible. And I love checking Osbargain. And then I was on Osbargain the other day and there was this like, because it's click frenzy at the moment, there was all these deals. And then someone, I'm starting to learn the lingo of like Osbargain. People have like each of these weird sites has their own vernacular. And People talk about stacks, which is like when you lay different like promo codes and cashback offers and whatever on top of each other to get like the best possible deal. And I decided to do one of these crazy stacks. I followed someone who'd commented on this deal and I got like a $900 vacuum cleaner for like $440. And I am (gasps) just like, I just want everyone to kind of bathe in the excellence of that. And it's going to arrive on Friday and I'm going to vacuum everything. I'll give everyone an update on my Dyson next week. Michelle, what model did you buy? I got the V10, the Animal V10 specifically. Oh, okay, you guys, that's what I had. Oh my god, Dyson podcast is it good? As a, as a separate thing. <laughs> Jerry, we don't need you. Michelle, it's is it good? Changed my life. Oh my god, I can't wait. I can't wait. I have a cat, and he sheds so much, and I vacuum every day, and it's just so satisfying. And constantly, she sheds more than she does anything else. So that's amazing. Well, oh. I'm so glad to have that reassurance, Michelle. What have you got in your links? Is it also a Dyson deal? <laughs> <laughs> I wish this is not a sponsored podcast, by the way. <laughs> no, it can be. Um, Dyson, hit us up. <laughs> I've just got a general Google search for a playwright named Debbie Tucker Green, and it's been open for five weeks because I went to Dublin five weeks ago for an artist program that's part of the Dublin Theatre Festival, and so one of the other participants who was in the program was a games designer, but he works at the Royal Court Theatre in London. And I think we were just talking about theatre that we enjoyed. And so I mentioned this playwright called, I think her name's Young Jean Lee. Let me just double check. Yes. And she wrote a play called Straight White Men that I really enjoyed. And then he was like, oh, you should look up Debbie Tucker Green's work. We've had her work programmed at the Royal Court before. And she's really amazing. And I hadn't heard of her before and I wanted to do a bit more research. But doing a general Google search (laughs) is the furthest I've gotten so far (laughs) because of all of my work deadlines. So I've just got, you know, her Wikipedia. Hopefully everyone (laughs) listening can look into her and enjoy her wonderful work. I hope so. (laughs) awesome michelle jeremy thank you so so much 100 episodes whiz bang that will do us for now 
I'm Lara Chambaker, he's Jeremy Wartsman, and this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more episodes, archives of all of our shows can be found at jackiewinter.givesyouthe.biz. And to receive beautiful artwork, the links to our open tabs and updates on all things Jackie Winter in one neat little weekly email package, you can sign up to our newsletter at jwg.is slash newslettering. You can also find us on Instagram via at Jackie Winter, and you can email us any love letters, hate mail, or general feedback at podcastjackiewinter.com. I've said this so many times, guys. Seriously, we love hearing from you. Remember, this is an enhanced podcast, so if you listen to this using Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, or Castro, you'll be able to see any relevant content as we wrap it on. And if you work for an advertising agency or design studio and you're interested in our live extended version of the show called Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thank you so much for listening. We will catch you next week for a less exciting 101st episode. Uh, Bye-bye. Bye. Hi and w- oh yep. fuck! Sorry, my dog needs to come in. Sorry, one second. <laughs> Jesse, Jesse, come here. Come on.